Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and for what you have done for us in him. Father, we pray that right now you would help us by the power of your spirit to understand your word, uh, to feel uh, the weight of what you've done. We pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to know how good it is to have uh, the relationship with you that we do have through him. And so we pray, God, please be at work. Please help me as I try to communicate it. Um, Please give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive. I pray, Father, that it would uh, transform the way we live our lives. But help us tonight to grasp uh, what it is that you've done. To hear the good news. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, we're in Romans. Um, Before I read it, just to say, we've got three weeks together in Romans. So, welcome to a little mini-series. We're going to take three steps. uh, And the three steps go like this. Uh, The righteous God makes the unrighteous righteous. He does this righteously, therefore, part three, live righteously and join the global mission. That's going to be the three parts. The first part is the righteous God makes the unrighteous righteous. And that's where we are today. Next week will be he does it righteously. So three parts, which means, um, if you know Romans, Romans is a 16-chapter book. Uh, Some people have taken eight years to preach through it. So we're going a little bit quicker than that particular person did, which means we're going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, So keep your Bibles at the ready, um, and we'll try to... uh, Stay on track together. Uh, And before I read this uh, section out as well, let me just say that it's all too easy for us to uh, think to ourselves, to assume or to presume that we have a relationship with God, a positive one. In some sense, we all do have a relationship with God. But the key question is, really, what is that relationship like? And how do we know it's a positive relationship? How are we with God? And this is a massive question. I will suggest that it is the biggest and most important question we need to ask ourselves and be 100% sure, we need to be sure of our answer. What can we say about that? And not that we can just say, you know, I'm sure that God's going to think all right of me, but that we can have confidence in our relationship with God. How does God feel about you? Where do 
you stand with God? That is what we're going to take the rest of our time together looking at. So, let's look at these verses. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by, Jesus, by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So, as you'll know and easily observe, that was chapter 3, verse 21. And so we've obviously landed somewhere uh, in the letter. Stuff's already been said. The argument's already underway. <clears throat> so what we're going to do now is we're going to zoom back and we're going to quickly look at what the, what the background is to those words. And then we'll come back to land on those words and then see where those words take us. So we'll start by thinking about this, the situation that we're, we were in as unbelievers, uh, the gift of righteousness, and then what that righteousness means for us now and into the future. That's going to be our three little steps together. So the first thing is, Paul says those words against the backdrop of a situation in which... The relationship for humans with God is not good. Really not good. The situation is that God is actually angry with humanity. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. Actually, let's read, uh, let's read verse 17 first. Paul says... <coughs> Actually, let's read verse 16 first. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, Paul wants to go to Rome, and he wants to preach the gospel to the people in Rome. And the reason is that he wants to preach the gospel is because he says here, because I, in verse 16, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because, why, Paul? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Why is that, Paul? Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What kind of righteousness? A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Why is that the power of God for salvation to all who believe, Paul? And why is that important? And why are you so eager to go to Rome to preach it? For, verse 18... I know that four is not there, but oh, I didn't bring all my Bibles again. But if I were to do that thing where I bring out the other Bibles and read them, the other Bibles will say four. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Basically, the background here and the background that we have to embrace if we're to embrace the good news in chapter 3 is that God is angry with people. That's the situation of 
everybody in the world apart from Christ. Why is he angry with people? He's angry with people. Look what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against what? All the godlessness and wickedness of people. The other translations would read, uh, it's, it's saying roughly the same thing, but, but, it, but um, the English, I think, helps us to understand what's going on. Against all the unrighteousness. It's against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. You see, you've got wickedness there, right? But, we, but, but the ESV or the CSB, they'll have unrighteousness there. <clears throat> That's because this issue of righteousness is a big issue, you see, and God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of people. The unrighteousness of people is a really big problem, and it creates a relationship with God in which he's angry with people. Why is that? Uh, Because, verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. People are not glorifying God, and they're not giving thanks to God, even though they know that God exists, and therefore God is angry with people. Now, how do they know that God exists, and how can Paul judge them in this way? Well, he says... Because people have no excuse, because God's made himself known in creation. So all the people everywhere, uh, in their unrighteousness, they trade God, they know him, they can see him in creation, and they should be uh, giving thanks and honouring him, but they don't. Instead, they become idolaters, they worship and serve created things. And so God uh, is angry with them and he hands them over to their sin. And the idea is, it's like God letting out the rope on people and they become more and more chaotic, like a wild animal on a leash in a china shop. They're just letting out the leash and they just start smashing more stuff and hurting themselves. That's what we're like. So look what it says here in verse, um, verse 24. The logic is they exchanged... Uh, they traded God, they worshipped and served idols, and then look at verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So God lets out the rope. He gives them over to their own sinful desires. But they, they still carry on being idolaters, and so look in verse 26, because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then the same idea comes down for the third time in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do not do, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The situation at the start of Paul's letter is he says, effectively, 
humanity is right in it. And he's not saying, if you'll notice at the end there of those verses, he's not saying that's what they're like, therefore God's angry with them. He's saying that's evidence that God is angry with them. It's a cycle. It is, they start with unrighteousness and idolatry. It leads to more and more unrighteousness. And so they are filled with unrighteousness. And it's very, very bad news. Paul then makes a move and he, and he makes a couple of arguments against people that try to wriggle out of this. <clears throat> what he does in chapter 2 is he says, uh, he, 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 ha- he has an argument with, a, with an imaginary person and the imaginary person is saying, yes, but you know, I'm not full of all those types of things that you're talking about um, and I'm not like those other sinful people. There are sinful people out there, understandably, I see what you're saying, Paul, but I'm not one of those. And Paul says, Paul's logic is effectively, you're a hypocrite. Um, And so he says, in the way that you judge others, um, you will be judged. Same as like Jesus says in Matthew 7, I think. Uh, And he says, um, because the thing that you judge for another person, you yourself are doing the same thing. Um, And the way that it works out is is it's that same idea of take out the plank out of your own eye before you try and take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Uh, Paul says, at the end of the day, it's that, that idea of the voice recorder on Judgment Day um, where, you know, you imagine if you spend your whole life with a, with, a, with a little recorder around your neck and then it comes to Judgment Day and God says, okay, it's time for judgment, but instead of me setting up the standard, we'll just take your voice recorder and for all the time, all, we'll look at all the standards and all the ways by which you judged other people and then we'll hold up your life next to those standards. Every time you said, I can't believe she did that, you'll say, okay, is that the type of thing that really is really wrong to do? No, look, you've done that a whole number of times. Or, you know, um, what an idiot. What a stupid thing to say. What a fool. Can't believe that person would be so low. Etc, etc, etc. Why are you so impatient? And... That is the standard. So he says, the person that wants to wriggle out of it and say, I'm not like that, he says, actually, you are like that, and you're a hypocrite, and instead of you, you're not receiving God's wrath on you now, instead you're storing up wrath for a day of wrath. That's what he says here. In chapter 2, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. This is chapter 2, verse 1. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then after, and then he comes back to what I've just said now. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's verse 5. So that's not good. You're not, you, you, you think, okay, the person who tries to wriggle out of it says, God's wrath is not on me now. Uh, perhaps it will be the case that he says, maybe I'm fine with God. Paul says, no, actually, you're a hypocrite. You do it secretly, internally, perhaps, um, and you're storing up wrath for a day of wrath. So if you don't see judgment coming to pass on people now, it's just being stored up for a day when it's going to come to pass. And then Paul deals with the Jew, the presumptuous Jew, in chapter 2, verse 17. You can see there, it's just, I know we're moving fast. Uh, verse 17, he says, now if you call yourself a Jew... Okay, so here's another person who might say, oh, I'm not included in that bunch because I'm a Jew, remember? I'm one of God's people. 
I've, I've um, received the mark of circumcision, so, you know, I'm in. We're the chosen people. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Or in other words, does the law not apply to you as well? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then Paul comes with the conclusion. You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now he's speaking to people who are in exile because they have been breaking the law as a nation. So it's one of those situations where you say, oh, if it was me, I wouldn't have done that. You know, and it kind of puts you in that situation. That's the way. That's the way that Paul set up the argument. Uh, if it was me, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. That's a very risky place to put ourselves. You see, and Jesus actually says in another part, he says to the Pharisees, because you guys act like that, it actually shows that you would have done exactly the same thing because you're proud. You see, you're arrogant. So that very mentality that says, I wouldn't have done that, is an attitude that Jesus would say, because you say that, that's evidence that actually you would. So Paul put, he kind of sets up that situation. You know, the, the scriptures have said, when you guys are in exile, it's going to be because you were lawbreakers as a nation. And here you are, Still, Rome is a superpower. And he says, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then look what he says in verse 25. He says, you Jews are actually in the same position as everybody else. Circumcision has value. That's circumcision, that's Jewishness, has value. If you, are, if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. You see, because the, the way it works is that is that um, Paul said unrighteousness is the problem. People need righteousness. And then he says, if you rest on the law, that's only going to work if you keep the law. So if you're going to have righteousness by the law, you need to keep it. Because that's how it works. You can't just be circumcised and you can't just be born into Judaism. You've got to keep the law. And that's where the problem comes, for the Jew, or for all of us. In the end, Paul's final verdict is, in chapter 3, verse 9, uh, as his, after his argument continues a bit longer, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage by being a Jew? He says, not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. The final verdict and the situation that people stand in before we get to chapter 3, verse 21 is that there's going to be a future judgment. It's going to be a judgment according to works. That means it's going to be a judgment according to how we've lived. Uh, to everyone who does evil, uh, there will be uh, trouble and distress. Um, so look in verse 9. Sorry, check this in chapter 2, verse 9. 
This, um, this is where this says this. Um, there will be a future day of judgment, and then he says, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. For the Gentiles, they've got the conscience, they've got creation, but they've got this conflicting thought inside of them, and they don't follow the law. For the Jew, they've got the law to reveal God's way to them, the way that it works is you have to keep it. So the end of the situation is that Paul can say at the end this long string of quotes from the Old Testament about what kind of a dire situation we're in. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And he goes on and on and on. And then he says, now we know that, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, this is key, by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Now, the point there is to pause at that point and hopefully we can feel the weight of the situation. Paul's, Paul's takes a few chapters to set up a situation which effectively, he says, we're in an awful situation as humanity. Absolutely desperate, unrighteous idolaters whom God is handing over to our own sinful nature. Driving ourselves further and further into sin, and at best, storing up wrath for a day of wrath. Now, that comes as a jolt. And that means that the relationship that people have, if they don't have Christ, is not a good one with God. It's not good. They don't have peace with God. It's not like a friendly chat. And then comes the light of 3.21 to 25. So let's read it again. And this is now the gift of righteousness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, you see, that was the thing that we needed, and that's why it was important that I flagged up in chapter 1, verse 18, that it was the unrighteousness of people that was the big problem. But then it, what it's saying now, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, that's him summarising again, and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see that? The difference here, there are three points to note. First thing is that this gift of righteousness comes through faith that's really important. It comes through faith. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by works of the law for the Jew. 
It doesn't come by living a perfect life uh, for the Gentile without your conscience convicting you of sin. Right? Look where it says that. So this is faith in contrast to works. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith. So if you want this righteousness to be yours, you receive it by faith. You don't wait. You don't wait to clean yourself up. You don't work to get yourself right. You receive it by faith. In Christ, in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, and then look where he says, he says the same thing again, uh, just to make it clear, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's how you receive Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. It's a gift of righteousness and it's by it's received by faith. It's not just any random faith, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22 again, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. God, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of, of, of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for us is who is to be received by faith. Next thing to note is that it's for all who believe. Look how many times all comes up. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. This is verse 22 again. If you memorise it, that's probably a good thing. To all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. You see that? We could, we, could, we could drill down here and spend a lot longer. But those are a few key things. Final thing. It's free. This is the same as by faith. We don't work for it. But it's free. And look where he says that. Verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace. All are justified freely by his grace. We don't have time, but if we were able to look through chapter 5, verse 12 through to 21, Paul repeatedly says, the gift, the gift, the gift, the gift, the gift came by the one man. The gift, the gift. And what? how do gifts work? Just a quick one. Pretty easy. Gifts, how do they work? Do you pay for gifts? If you paid for a gift, what would it be? Would it be a gift? No, wouldn't be a gift. Right, so that's how gifts work. You don't pay for them, they're free. So there's just a few things to note about this righteousness. Hear what Paul is saying. This is like explosion of goodness in the Bible. If we got that first section, chapter 1, verse 18, through to 3, verse 20, and felt that, whoa, really, really big problem, and righteousness is a key issue there, and then, ooh, we could work, we could do the law perfectly, that could be a way, and then feel that condemning weight of the law in the history of Israel. We'd then say, wow, these verses, now a righteousness is available. And we perhaps, perhaps we've heard it too often, we've been Protestants for too long, is this remarkable thing that now a righteousness is available that's free for everybody 
You see, that righteousness completely changes what you're like. You're no longer unrighteous. It's free and it's received by faith. You just receive it. You just believe, put your trust in Jesus. Now, that's not all of the good news, but that's a big chunk of the good news. But just because we're whizzing through Romans, we'll... we'll, um, We'll jump on a few things now that flow out the back of that righteousness that we're given, right? Because the key thing here is that the relationship changes between us and God. So that question that I posed to you at the start, you see, what's your relationship with God like? And what do you think his disposition towards you is, right? Outside of Christ... The Bible would say, you're in trouble. He's not happy with you. You don't have peace with him. Because you're unrighteous. But now, if you've received Christ, and you've received the free gift of righteousness, look what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1. In chapter 4, he argues that Actually, this whole thing that I'm talking about started from the start. That was Abraham. Abraham had a righteousness by faith. Um, It's in continuity with the Old Testament. It's in continuity with the Old Testament story. That's what he he wants to... He has to defend that along the way. And then in chapter 5, and we'll get to that next week, um, we'll touch on um, issues that like the one that come up in chapter 4. But chapter 5, verse 1, look what he says now. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God. You see that? We have peace with God. What's the opposite of the peace? Unpeace? Enemies? Is wrong. Now we have peace. Having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So now we stand in grace and we have peace with God. That should be a little tonic for you throughout the week. As you you look up and think about these verses... You think about what's God's disposition towards you. If you've got faith in Christ, you have peace with God. His anger has been dealt with at the cross. Now, look at this logic in in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. We have peace with God, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 9, we have the most amazing hope And this is like the logic that Paul now employs is incredible. Because what he's talking about is he's talking about the the future, right? Because God's story is not finished. So what's the future going to be like for us? And look what he says in chapter 5, verse 9 and, and following. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see how God's wrath is still a a, a lingering issue in the background, right? 
For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, what's he talking about there? If we get this logic, it's extraordinary. What he's saying is this. The first time Jesus came, he came to people who were his enemies. That was the love of God. Right? The love of God was displayed for us in that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. We were in a state of being God's enemies. That's what that wrath issue was, right? The remarkable thing about Christianity is that into that situation, God doesn't just blot us out, but instead... Into that situation, to his enemies, he sends his son. You see that? So, the first time that Jesus came, he came to people who were unrighteous enemies. And what did he do? He died for them. He loved them by dying for them. What an, that's an amazing disposition of God toward us, right? That's amazing. Paul says, you know, at another point, scarcely will someone die for a righteous person. He says it here. You know, very rarely will anyone, verse 7, die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul's logic goes like this. If while we were enemies, Christ came and died for us, now think about the future. Because what's Christ going to come back for? He's not going to come back for enemies. He's going to come back for people who have been reconciled to him through the death of his son. Right? And made alive in Jesus. So now he says, let's think about that logic now. Since uh, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? In other words, how much more can we be sure that God's going to come and meet us with a good disposition, shall we be saved by Jesus from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will it be the case that when Jesus comes back, we'll be saved by his life? Because the second time when he comes back, he's coming back to people that he's already died for when they were his enemies. Now they're his friends and made righteous. If he loved them, how much more is it going to be like a good relationship when he comes back? Which means that the future is totally transformed for us. Can you see that? You can't have a more secure hope about the future. This only is good news against the backdrop of knowing that there is coming that day of wrath, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You see, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When that happens for us now, we will be saved through the life of Christ because we've already been justified by faith in him. That means that your future is incredibly secure. Because, <clears throat> not because you know everything's going to pan out right nicely, how you might like it, Right? You end up with the right car, the right house, the right wife, the right kids, whatever it might be. Not because of that, because the biggest issue in the universe for you has been solved. 
everything is in light of eternity. Everything is in light of that day. Our lives, in comparison to eternity, are like the space between these tiles, right? It's like the little grout space. That's the distance, just from there to there, just that tiny little bit. And eternity just stretches on. After that line, that's where it's going to matter. After the edge of that little grout space, in that little patch of grout, we have kids, we have houses, we possibly get married, we get ill, we don't get ill. What matters in that space, what matters right now, is whether your relationship with God is right. Whether you're at peace and a friend, or whether you're an enemy and under his wrath. And what that means as well is not only is our future really secure, Paul says um, it's secure and it's absolutely full of good things. And this is where we'll finish up. So in chapter 8, after saying many things, and I I struggled to kind of pin down, you know, know, how do you say in one sermon kind of of the blessings, you know, of, um, of what God has done for us in Christ? because they just go on and on. Um, But one of them here is chapter 8, verse 18 to 25. He's just said that we are children of God, and if we're children, then we are heirs, you see. We're co-heirs with Christ. Um, I presume I don't have to explain how being an heir works. You get an inheritance. There's an inheritance waiting for you. Christ has an inheritance. His inheritance is the whole world, Right? We are co-heirs with Christ of the whole world because we've been made children. So then Paul can say, verse 18 to 25, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What Paul's going on about here is, notice how he's talking about creation, he mentions creation a few times, he's talking about the whole world becoming our inheritance. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies. Creation waits eagerly for this day of redemption when all creation is restored. Uh, It's like a new creation. It becomes our inheritance. The world is ours. We are heirs of God. And we ourselves groan as well, as we wait for that day. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. So we finish on this idea that we've been saved to a hope. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently.
through Christ, we can say that we have peace with God. We can be super confident about the future because Jesus says, if he came for us while we were sinners, how much more is he going to come for us now that he's made us friends? And as we wait, we wait for the redemption of our bodies, resurrection of our physical bodies to live forever. We wait for the creation itself to be liberated from its bondage to decay and somehow become a, a new creation that doesn't have these creaky, groaning pains. Uh, and we ourselves uh, wait in that space, waiting for that inheritance that has been given to us because we've been made children of God. So in the flow of Romans, uh, this comes as, uh, you might say, the good news. Uh, this comes in Romans as the, uh, the righteous God makes the unrighteous righteous and serves as a significant chunk of this letter and is the, is the, is the, is the centre and the, and the core, really, of where Paul's going to go um, uh, in the rest of the letter and what his purpose in it is for. Um, as I finish, let me just read these uh, couple of verses from chapter 8, which we probably know and rightly love, but they, they speak about similar truths to what we read in chapter 5. It's just good to hear them again. What then shall we say in response to these things? It's a good question. <clears throat> Perhaps how excited could we possibly get? If God is for us, can you see how that's a change from his wrath is revealed against us? If God is for us now, God is, will be for you if you're in Christ. Who can be against us? Who? There's nobody. Who's going to be bigger than God? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, because he's already given the most valuable thing, along with him graciously give us all things, like a whole new creation? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who's going to come? And say that you're unrighteous now. Because it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Who's going to condemn you? No one. Christ Jesus perhaps? The judge of all the world? Christ Jesus who died? He's the one who died for you. He's not going to condemn you. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, he's definitely not going to judge you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I will give you thanks for what you have done. 
absolutely unbelievable that you sent Christ to die for us, uh, though we absolutely did not deserve it. You came to us as we were your enemies. We traded you in and we worshipped and served uh, the things that you'd made instead of you. We didn't honour you. We didn't love you. We didn't thank you like you deserve. We didn't treat you like God. And you were rightfully angry. We deserve your just judgment. But you've not given us that. You've given us Christ. Thank you for giving us him as a sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that you've given him to us to be received by faith as a free gift. We thank you so much, God. Thank you that we now can have, uh, say that we can have peace with you. Thank you that we can have confidence about the future. Thank you for this incredible gift that you've given to us of eternal life and a new creation. You've given us way more than we deserve. You've been uh, over and above. It's, it's incredible. Thank you for this. We pray, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts more and more to know the love of Christ, to know what you've done for us in him. And we pray that each day this week and in days and weeks and months to come, we would lay hold of this truth that we are right with you. And that is the best thing in the universe. And that when that is right, our biggest problem is solved. And so we boast in you, we rejoice in you, we say you are great. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We lift up our song to you and sing about Christ now. Pray that it be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name.